Christ. The landscape has changed. More of the world is unchurched. And prophets, particularly uh, the classical prophets, are, are much needed today. They're often ignored in our evangelical contemplative circles. But they, they're, they're vitally important. I believe God has a lot for us. And speaking of what God has for us, last week, my, my brother uh, and our leader Greg here preached a great message. And he said, and I'm going to quote him, the purpose of the church is mission. It's one of the mighty purposes of the church. And the context of that mission is love. That this is our calling. We're, we're being reminded of the vision that God has for us. To love God and, yes, love others in Christ. And it's not simply just to do good things, but rather to do God's things. God's work. In God's name. And, and God's given us a charge not to feel guilty about being reminded of our mission, but rather to explore the beauty of justice. What's going on? You can tell me. No, I'm just blending my top of my shirt. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> What's the beauty that God has for our lives? The beauty of God's justice. To explore that. In fact, as we've been in this season and in and, and, and this series, I want to ask that question for you. Sometimes we have questions during our message. What, what beauty, beautiful and actionable mission i.e. justice, has God been stirring in you? And if you're just visiting us today, we're really glad you're here. Maybe the question is, what may be God stirring in you in terms of justice and mercy and God's actionable mission? And uh, what I want us to do today is to think about that, introverts. Take that in. But I also want us to process that with others. And you may feel like, ugh, that's vulnerable. Or that's risky. Or you may even feel that temptation that if you share, you might have to do something about it. And let me just ease everybody's worries here. That's actually why we share this stuff. <laughs> that's actually the accountability that God would want for us. To, to make these things, bring these things to the light. So that we would have not only an awareness of them, but maybe even an accountability towards them. That's why we share these things. So like for me and my household... I've sensed God like, hey, it's time to open your doors again. It's like you've been in a season, now it's time to open your doors again. And, and when you see me, you can say, hey, Andy, how's it looking for you to open your doors again? How's it looking for you and Courtney to do that? Right? That's why I share those things. So let's share together what God is or may be stirring in you. What beautiful, as we talk about, and actionable justice God has for us. Take a minute and do that, please. Turn to people near you. I'm getting This is a big help having it here. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> 
very large compared to like averages. We, and almost everybody who's like a core member of this team serves in some way, shape, or form. Like 90% like Sunday serving participation, which is just epic. It's, it's an anomaly that way, and um, it's really good. We have this red hot sun. We have a real red hot sun. The coals are burning, you know? That's a really good thing. And I was uh, hanging out with uh, Eric Hammerhand. You guys know the Hammerhands? Um, they're, they're awesome. And uh, we were having cinnamon rolls the other morning uh, while the women were at the women's event just watching our kids together. He said this word. He said, you know, he shared a helpful word. Our church here is focused on the people that are here. Uh, and not so much the people that are not here. And he's like, I'm really grateful to have a community like that. And I think that's true. Of course, we care about everybody. We want to reach people. But we do care for one another. Uh, with that, the Lord has gathered a red-hot center. But the invitation, why we've been like reading through the book of James and now Amos, is that how is God going to scatter us for his kingdom movement? Um, to keep one another uh, accountable to that. Like, hey, this is who we are. Uh, what are now, what is God calling us to do based on who we are? And um, to do that out of freedom, without guilt or shame. And that is the tension, to do it without guilt and shame. And I think throughout the series, we've been preaching out of that place, hey, this is our opportunity, this isn't our obligation, this is out of conviction, not condemnation, but it is hard to read the book of Amos without feeling like, oh, I suck, you know, like, or like feeling like that, you know, it's just like hard, even as I preach, some of my own insecurities come up as I've been preaching, I'm like, okay, just preach the word, and then contextualize it for our people. And, and, and guilt and shame, the issue of guilt and shame, it is the default modus operandum for the world. It's the default receptivity for our own selves in terms of motivating change. It's like our default. We, we tend to shift towards shame. It's like the human condition. This is why it says in the scriptures, there's no condemnation, which means no shame for those who are in Christ. There's freedom. For the Spirit of the Lord is there's, there's freedom. But it's hard in the series. I mean, when you look at big organizations, they don't mean to do it. And I'm not going to name any because that would be shame. But, like, a lot of times you, you hear this, this message of, you've got to do this. Call now. It's just 39 cents a day. Call now. As you hear Sarah McLaughlin sing, I will remember you. Pictures of dogs on the screen. <laughs> I still left from Jim Gaffigan, if you know Jim Gaffigan. But uh, it's true. You, you, you feel like, all right, I've got to call right now. If you care, you'll call right now. And does God, is God opposed to giving? Come on, people. No, does God want us to give? Yeah, is it okay to res respond and react and to pray to see what God would have for you? That's the call. To not do it, not feel forced to do it, not feel under compulsion, but to be compelled by God's love. To take a moment to be like, all right, Lord, what do you have for me? Because if we do pray about this, if we do take an opportunity to look at it as an opportunity, God may ask us to give. God may ask us to do something insane and awesome, to do something even more wild. All right, Lord, this has come to me. What do we want to do about it? But if it's forced, if it's reactive and not responsive, it's usually a bit shame. And a lot's been talked clinically about shame, psychologically. Even in the church, there's a lot of definitions. But most people uh, agree that shame is an excruciating internal experience. 
that when you feel shame, when you feel like uh, you're a failure or you're not doing something and therefore you are nothing, um, what happens is shame divides the soul. It makes you want to disown yourself. And when shame gets really toxic, we hide. And we put up these false projections of who we are in order to protect ourselves. That's what shame does. Um, shame, I, I like this definition. I haven't read anywhere, I just believe in it internally. Shame says, because of what you have done or not done, this is who you are. Basically, it, it defines you on your behaviors. Because, in the case of this conversation, because of you have failed or I have failed at participating in God's mission, that we are failures. Religion tells us um, a lot of times, because we fail, we're a failure. And the gospel wants to continually reverse this truth. The gospel says, because you're God's child, this is your opportunity, this is your calling. Because of who you are, this is how we're going to live a life. That's Ephesians 4. That's that big statement where it says, Ephesians 4 1, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've already received. You're God's son and daughter. So whenever shame comes in, whenever you feel like, oh, I feel cut to the core right now, I'm feeling less than for whatever reason, it's an opportunity to, one, return to God and be like, all right, I'm your child. I am your child. And not just that, but also God to go to God and say, I am your child who is limited. I am a limited child. And when you know the truth that you have limits, then you know this, that you can't do all things. And if you know you can't do all things, then you can do something. And that is what God is interested in. That's where we need to practice our prophetic ears and say, hey, Lord, all right, Lord, what do you want me to do? What is my yes, and therefore what will be my no, so that I can step into your beautiful and actionable justices? Does that make sense? Not all guilt is bad. Not all guilt is bad, by the way. Uh, John Bradshaw writes in his book, Seminal Work, uh, Healing the Shame That Binds You, that there is a healthy guilt, which is conviction. It's, it, he defines it as healthy guilt as the emotional core of our conscience. The results from acting in a manner that's contrary to your uh, values or precepts, in our case, of our kingdom living. It's like, all right, Lord, I'm sensing an invitation from you. It's not a shame, but I'm sensing there is an invitation. So, Lord, what do we do about that? Because left unchecked, it'll become shame. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm interested in today, is, is looking at the life of Amos, who was a prophet, not only just studying the images and the words that are in the text, and there's a lot there, but also the, the well-convicted calling of the prophet. Because in many ways, we are called to be prophets. Prophets are those who hear God's words and respond. Part of being a prophet is proclaiming God's word, but part of being a prophet is acting to, to, to step into what God has uh, for the prophet or prophetess if you want to be. Use that language. It's like, I'm saying for all of us. Cool? We feel good? Feeling pretty good this morning. The Lord is good. So um, Amos chapter 7. I'm going to have a standards for the first section, but because it's so long, I'll then have a sit. <laughs> okay? And I'm going to interject. I'm going to provide some reflections and commentary as we step into uh, this passage. Again, Amos is from south 
uh, from the south of Judah. He's speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel. This is after the war, really internal infighting that separated the two kingdoms. And he is speaking to a rebellious nation who is acting completely unjust to those in their country, particularly the marginalized. Amos 7 says this, This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested, just as the late crops were coming up. When they had been stripped the land clean, I, Amos, cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. Jacob represents the country of Israel. Verse 3 says, So the Lord relented. That's not just God's word for us, but it, it is for now. You can have a seat. So we're going to go through a series of images that God's given to Amos, that he's proclaiming to this northern king of Israel. These are the judgments that are coming your way. One of them is this, this locust plague, which is a, a famine. And Joel prophesies about it. Uh, and as Amos appeals to God, it's like, they're too small. The famine happens, the whole country is going to be wiped out. He's not even appealing based on the covenant faithfulness of God. He's just saying, like, they won't survive. Lord, you can't do this. And the beautiful thing happens is actually God does relent. And this is a foreshadowing of the mercy of God. Let's read verse 4. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. The sovereign Lord was calling out for a judgment by fire. It dried up the deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, this is Amos again, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the sovereign Lord says. It's another vision, one of fire. Amos intercedes. God relents. And what we're seeing here is that Amos' intercession actually prefigures a future prophet that we'll find in Jesus who intercedes on behalf of his people. There's messianic implications here. By the way, do you know that Jesus is like praying for you right now? Is this an incredible reality? Verse 7, this is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Anybody know what a plumb is? A traditional plumb is like a string with a weight in the bottom. It basically tells you if an upright surface is uh, plumb or square. You want everything to be square when you build something. Uh, nothing truly square, but you want it to be as best you can. But in scripture, this idea of a plumb line represents a standard by which the faithful are called to live covenantally. It also provides um, the measure from which judgment is gauged, and that everyone is, is, is gauged by a plumb line. Everyone is judged according to that. Again, messianic implications. There has to be someone to intervene. Then the Lord said, look, I'm setting a plumb line along my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed, and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I'll arise against the house of Jeroboam. One thing I want to notice here is it's not a total destruction. And there's not even an appeal from Amos. That the Lord has measured this unjust nation against his standard, and they have failed to live against to satisfy those standards. And, and by this holy standard, they will be judged. All of this section has huge messianic implications for someone to save us. Now we enter into this next section, 
which has the only narrative in the book other than the beginning. The rest of it's been poetry, with the exception of the beginning, to Amos and to the land, and now there's a conversation that's going to happen. It's pretty interesting. Verse 10, Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. This is one of the priests of the northern kingdom, corrupt priests, who's sending a message to Jeroboam, this is the king of northern Israel. He's saying, this guy Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. This land cannot bear all his words. For this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile, away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Go back south. Earn your bread there, and do not prophesy here. Do not, uh, I'm sorry, earn your bread there, and do, not, and do your prophesying there. See, he, he's dismissing Amos as his prophet for hire. And he's saying, dude, we're over. We're over these messages. You think you're over the series? They were like overhearing it. Like, we're done. Can we get another message series? Verse 13. Don't prophesy anymore in Bethel, because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. See, these are all the leaders who are now standing up to Amos. These are leaders who have participated in many social injustices. These are leaders who, who are complicit in keeping uh, the wealthy, wealthier and the poor impoverished. And we talked about this last week, about this idea of idolatry. This idea that this northern kingdom has had a lesser ethic because they've been chasing after lesser gods. Gods who promise power. Gods who promise uh, protection. Gods who promise uh, pleasure. There's so many gods. And it, it, it makes you ask a question. It makes me ask questions. Why in the world would God's covenant people just jettison the one true God? Why would they jettison Yahweh for all of these gods of other peoples and nations? I.e. Asher, Anat, Molech, uh, Baal. And the truth is, that's a bit of black and white thinking. That's what God was revealing to me. It's less that they're saying, you know what, we don't want you, Yahweh. It's more that the people are saying this. Yahweh's in this. When it comes to honoring this God of power and of national supremacy, our God is in this. Uh, or when it comes to sacrifice even. Yeah, I think like our God is a God of sacrifice. So they've convinced themselves that Yahweh's in it with these other gods. They've conflated Yahweh with all these different things because Yahweh brings joy, but that doesn't mean you're going to have to be constantly pleasured. Yahweh invented sex, but that doesn't mean you have sexual freedom to do whatever you want. Yahweh is powerful, but that doesn't mean you conquer your enemies. And they got into this mentality of self-justification. God will want me to have good things at any cost because God loves me. God will want me to have this relationship. Because, yeah, I, I don't think I need to do this calling right now. It's just not my life stage. This work's not for me. I've already got enough work. So the question I, I have for us as God's people is when it comes to God's calling, how do we self-justify? How do we self-justify that now is just not the right time? Oh, I, I would do that, but I'm, 
I don't have X, Y, and Z set up. I would do that, but it's not my, quote, life stage. That makes sense, but maybe later on down the road. We have a tendency to, to self-justify, saying that God's in this, when God may not be in that. Verse 14. Amos answered, uh, Amaziah, I'm neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go and prophesy to my people Israel. So what do we know about Amos? Is that he heard from God. And he responded to God. And he's naming what's happened. That's what a prophet does. is one who hears and responds to God by proclaiming God's message. And most of what a prophet says is, is uh, forthtelling which means naming what is. There's some foretelling of naming the future, but when we hear from God, most of it is naming, hey, what's going on right now in life? What are you trying to say to me right now, God? And how am I going to take a step with you? And that's what Amos does. The one thing we don't recognize is what's required to hear from God. What do you think is required to hear from God? Anyone want to take a risk? Yeah? Yes? You're all right. That's exactly what's in my notes. It's, it's space, time, silence, stillness, a lot of times solitude. Verse 15 says this, The Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, What's interesting, and one could argue well, that the lowly role of being a shepherd is one of the best spaces to get away and hear from God. By its very nature, if you're shepherding sheep out on your own, Minus a couple, like, bears and wolves that you got to worry about. <laughs> Getting away with God is almost inescapable. It's built into the vocation. This is why shepherding is such a lowly vocation through Scripture, but like a highly call of a follower of Jesus. I'm the good shepherd. Jesus says, I'm the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. A shepherd, we're called to be, we're not called to be leaders. We're actually called to be shepherds. It's a wonderful reality. It's in the solitude and the stillness that Amos lived, where he heard from God and he gave up his vocation that moment to go prophesy in this northern kingdom, which is away from his home. And it's the solitude that we need. We actually need to create space. We need to start pruning now in order to hear from God. And that pruning teaches us that we may have to prune other things in order to step into what God has for us. That's what Amos does. He had space to be with God out in the fields. He proved his vocation for a season and went up there. When we think about what God's calling us in our lives, we need to prune areas in our lives so we can hear from God. And then God will have God may have something for us. And then we need to think through, okay, what do I need to prune in order to do that? Make sense? We'll talk about that later. I have a quote from really Ruth Haley Barton. I think it's pretty good. I'm gonna make it. This idea of solitude is the foundational discipline of a spiritual life. Is a time set aside to give God our full and undivided attention. In solitude, we withdraw from our lives, the company of others, and pull back from our many distractions in order to give God complete access to our souls. Yet, the paradox of hearing from God is that we need to turn other things off in order to step in what God has for us. It's creating intentional spaces to hear from God. Because here's the huge note. 
you and I are never going to have enough bandwidth. That's, that may be a prophetic word. When it comes to that question of what are the actionable and beautiful justices and mission that you have in your life, you won't have enough bandwidth. But if you're already pruning, I believe we can step into what God has for us as we step into God's love. Verse 16. Now then, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the descendants of Isaac. Amos is naming the belief that God is on their side. They're like, dude, stop prophesying. We're Israel. We're God's people. Even in the midst of their own unjust, they think like, yeah, God's with us. God's in. As we worship all these other idols, we've got Yahweh. He's one of the men. We're doing just fine. And Amos is like, no, dude, that's not what it's about. You need to turn to God. You need to repent. We need to come bring our whole selves to God. But because Israel's failed, this is what verse 17 says, because these leaders have failed, this is what the Lord says, your wife, Amaziah, will become a prostitute in the city, and your sons and daughters will die by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up, and your, you yourself will die in a pagan country, and Israel will surely go into exile away from the native land. This is an indictment against Amaziah personally as well as the greater leadership. It's probably symbolic for Israel, Love you, Dave. I don't mind my love. It's also a recognition that leaders are called to a higher standard. As we seek to lead out, God has a lot. God des desires a lot from us in his love. And anything he desires from us is ultimately for us, but we are held to a higher standard. Verse 8. This is what the Sodom Lord showed me, a basket, final image, of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? He asked. It's a basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. This ripe is not like a good kind of ripe. It means they're ripe for judgment. And their injustices have made them plump and ripe for judgment. And we'll see again some of these injustices so that we can understand uh, God's true desires. And that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy, and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when the new moon will be over, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath be ended, that we may market wheat, skimping on the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. I mean, God, he wanted us not, he wanted his people not to take everything off their land. He wanted whatever fell the floor to be available to the poor. And they were just scooping everything up. And they were selling the poor into slavery into to what would be their consumer debt. You can't pay this, the interest is compounded. You can't pay that, you're a slave. This is brutal abuse. So verse 7 says this, The Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob. I will never forget anything they have done. So how does this overlay with a scripture like Psalm 103? How do, when you read that, I'll never forget anything they've done with the scripture of like, as far as the east and the west, so far he's removed our transgressions from us. How do those two make sense? preview of next week when we talk about justice and judgment. 
But I think it's a worthy question. The one thing I can say is what Amos is prophesying on behalf of God is that those that God will never forget anything they've done are those who have said no to God. And also have said no to others. Verse 8, will not the land tremble for this? And all who live in it mourn. The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn the religious festivals in the morning and all of your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. And I will make that time like morning for an only sun. And the end of it like a bitter day. It's a lot there. Because of morning for an only sun. And that day. It's an allusion to Jesus being the Son of God. It's an allusion to the day of the Lord. Not only the final judgment for all of us, but it is alluding to the war verses of Assyria that will come for Israel in 722. But it's a recognition that God does judge in his love he provides mercy as we've seen. Verse 11. The days are coming, declares the Lord, the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. See, in biblical history, up until this point, the people of Israel have come to this conclusion whenever God has intervened through prophets and kings and uh, different uh, leaders and shepherds, really, that God has, uh, they would turn to God. They would, they would repent in distress. What happens here is zero repentance. Now there will be a coming judgment of silence that will last quite a long time for that northern kingdom. We're talking 722 B.C., a time of silence, until you find this messianic figure approach this woman by a well, 750 years later. It's a wonderful beauty of God's mercy still in the midst of silence, but silence it is. In that day, the lovely young woman and strong young men will faint because of thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria who say, as surely as your God lives, Dan, or as surely as God of Beersheba lives, they will fall, never to rise again. Because they've honored all these other gods, dishonored God, dishonored people, said no to this appeal from Amos, though it may be too late at that point as it is, there will never be this nation like it was. So, we've traveled through the scriptures, we've made some reflections, what do I believe God has for us? Because we're not, the, we're not the nation of Israel, but we are God's people. So what does God have for us as we seek to hear this uh, scripture? One, uh, in terms of prophetic callings, how do we step out of freedom and conviction? This is the conversation we're having, not out of guilt and shame, but out of freedom. The first thing that's clear from that first section is that we, we need to create spaces in our lives to hear from the Holy Spirit. Uh, we need to create spaces in our lives to respond to living God. And this is what's huge about that. Because we have a lot of buts when it comes to actionable justice. We have a lot of self-justifications. I want to do this, but it's not my season. I want to do this, but 
Uh, I don't have this set up in my life. I want to do this, but I'm too busy. I want to do this, but work. There is one but that matters. And here it is. Lord, I will do this, but you got to show up. And whatever comes to stepping into God's actionable and beautiful justices, we truly can't do it on our own. But we can say yes, and we can say yes with a but, but the but is, Lord, you got to join me. you got to do this thing. It can't be about me because I can't do this. But you've got to show up. That's what matters. That's the life of a prophet. One who responds to God, I will do this, Lord, but you've got to show up. Because I can't do it. The big thing about Israel, see, it's not about them doing the right thing. It's about their dependence. They lost their dependence on God. They lost the reality that God is the one who needs to resurrect their daily days. Their days. I don't need to say their daily days, but you get it. And God is in the business of showing up. So how do we step out into actual justice with freedom? We say, Lord, I hear you. I'll do this, but you've got to do it. You've got to show up. Second thing, how do we step out into our prophetic calling to freedom and conviction? Whatever the mission is, and this is when you've got to breathe in, we'll likely fail. Whatever the mission is, we'll likely fail along the way. Isn't that kind of comforting? What do you think about it? We're going to probably fail along the way. And even if we fail, God doesn't fail. I mean, look at the book of Amos. He failed. He's like, hey, I need you to go do this. Preach these people. And um, yeah, that's what I need you to do. So he goes up there and he's like, I'm going to preach this message. No one repents. He went and did his thing. He failed. But the beauty thing, the beautiful thing about it is it's not a failure. It's not a failure. Think about a tree. Think about uneaten fruit that falls from the tree, right? We've talked about this in the past, if you've been with me. There is no wasted fruit. Even if the fruit is not eaten, it dies and nourishes the soil. And there are people who are reading Amos' word today and being nourished. There's people in the exile for, for those times that had access to his words and were like, oh, this now makes sense. We're here, we're still living, there's a remnant. Some of us. But now we're saying it was all about depending on the one true God. So we may step out and we might fail. The scripture says, well done, good and faithful servant. It doesn't say well done, well done, good and fruitful servant. It's just about faithfulness. So as you're thinking about your actionable justices, you might fail. I might fail. We might fail. That's okay. We step down. Third point, as we consider our prophetic callings and stepping into actionable and beautiful justice with freedom and conviction, not shame, it begins with hearing from God. And also that calling must be sustained by God's guiding words. Even as we step into movements of justice, we need to keep turning to God. We need to be people who are people of daily repentance. Our Lord, I need to turn to you. Is this what you have for us? That's what's in the scriptures. This is one of the, the greatest tragedies for the people of Israel, that there will be a famine of hearing the words of God. That as people, as we step into justice, as we step into new endeavors, we also need to be continually discerning. It's like, okay, Lord, I, I want to step into this. What do you have for me now? Is this what you have from us? And sometimes it can feel like that there's an absence of God's words. And that, that's not an opportunity. Don't be discouraged. 
Sometimes that means stay in the course. Other times that may need to be greater, creating greater spaces with others to talk about, like, hey, what is, is this what you have for me, God? Is this what God has for us? It's an opportunity to check in. And so as a pastor who loves you, the best thing I can do is create space for you and God. So why don't we check in again with the Lord with the same question we had in the beginning. All right, Lord, you're the one who's saying this. It's your words. A word from you is worth more than a thousand elsewhere. So what beautiful and actionable justice are you stirring in me, Lord? Are you stirring in us? Take a moment. We're not in solitude, but you never actually are because God is with us. So take a moment and, and, and think about this. And as you think, I, I will give some helpful criteria. I didn't get an opportunity to share this a couple weeks ago because the slide didn't come up. But if hearing from God feels like a little bit of a, like 501 and you may feel like you're in a 201 place, I haven't taken that class yet. Um, thanks, Gary. Um, here's some helpful reminders. The Holy Spirit is with you. The Holy Spirit is inside you. It's in the business of convicting and comforting, comforting and convicting. And the Spirit doesn't always make sense. I just want you to know that too. It says that uh, the foolishness of God, the Holy Spirit is God, is greater than the wisdom of this world. It might sound crazy. Also, God's ways are greater than our ways. It might sound weird. But just take a moment. Practice listening. Some other criteria that's helpful is what you're sensing from God loving. Does it align with the character and priorities of Jesus? Jesus being the Son of God. Perfect person of sacrifice who loves beyond comparison. And four, is it contra-biblical? Scripture is actually a gift of help. Is it consistent with Scripture or is it counter to Scripture? And this is actually why I'm really excited that we did Amos. Because we're kind of expanding our scriptural knowledge a bit. All right, Lord, I've encountered you through this book. As I seek to discern your words in my daily lives, this is part of who you are. The question again that matters is, what beautiful and actual justice is God stirring in me? I just want to create space for us just to pray. Introvertial love this. There's no sharing with others. It's just time to hear from God, and then I'll close us in prayer before we have another song.